Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Valerie Loveless. Welcome to the podcast, Valerie. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I'm really excited to be here. And just by way of introduction, we're going to do kind of two parts of this podcast. We'll talk about Valerie's life as an LDS mom. Um, she got married at 18 um, in the temple and then has three kids. And then she's going to talk about kind of feeling stuck. Um, love being a mom, but that comes with that a, a unique journey that I don't know much about. Um, but I recognized it at times in my own dear wife as I went off to work and my wife was home with the kids. And t so Valerie will talk about that. And I think that'll be helpful for our listeners to know what it's like to be a stay-at-home mom and some of the hard parts of that and some of the positive parts of that. Valerie will then talk about a feeling to join the workforce. And that led her to Cedar Fort Publishing, where she joined Cedar Fort Publishing. Is that the correct name of the company? Yes. Cedar, Cedar Fort, Fort Publishing and Media. Cedar Fort Publishing and Media, um, which is in Utah County. She joined that company in October of 2019. So that's just a few months ago as the media producer. And she is um, running a podcast at Cedar Fort. And we'll talk about Cedar Fort. Uh, my book that I've mentioned, um, the working title is Ministering to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, is being published by Cedar Fort. It's due to them in April. I'm working hard to get it to you on time, so it'll be published sometime later in 2020. And um, all the proceeds from that book are going to the Stockton Powers Memorial, one of our gay Latter-day Saints who died by suicide a few years ago. And so we'll talk more about that in subsequent podcasts. But I do have a relationship with Cedar Fort. I'm glad that they're willing to publish this book that brings a lot of stories of LGBTQ parents and our LGBTQ Latter-day Saints to our to readers so we can better meet their spiritual needs. So welcome to the podcast, Valerie. Thank you. Talk about, just introduce yourself to our listeners, where you grew up, just, you know, where you got, you know, how, I mentioned how old you are, you're married, your husband, how many kids you have, just kind of share with that with our listeners. Sure. So I'm uh, originally from Southern California, and a lot of Utahns get excited when I tell them that, wow, you grew up in Southern California, but I grew up in a really disappointing place in Southern California. There's a disappointing place? Yes, there is. There's <laughs> lots of disappointing places in Southern California. If you leave the coastline, basically, everything else is very disappointing because it's all desert. It is. It is. So I grew up in the high desert in Southern California in a tiny, tiny little town called Phelan, California spelled with a P-H. <laughs> Will you spell it for us? P-H-E-L-A-N. You shouldn't even be calling it Phelan, but that's what we called it. And how far, I'm, a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with the drive on mm -hmm. I-15 between Southern California. Yeah, so if you've ever driven straight from Utah to Disneyland, yes. you would drive through a town called Victorville. Yes. And if you just went a little bit further past Victorville, you would end up in Phelan. Yeah, so Victorville is so, kind of like the we we were driving to Southern California and we hit Victorville. It was kind of the beginning of ongoing civilization, right? Exactly. And when we left Victorville, going back to Salt Lake, that was kind of the beginning of the desert. Yeah, yeah I don't know I if know. that's still true. Yeah, that part from Victorville until you get to Las Vegas is just terrible, isn't it? It's just so desolate. And there's this one road that's like XXYYX. Road. Yeah, 
I just I want physics to, or something like that. If any of our listeners want to come on the podcast and tell us why that road is yeah. named XXYYXX. I think it's ZZ. ZZ. ZZ Y ZZX or something like that. And I think we called it Zizix. I don't know. Zizix. Okay, there you go, listeners. If any I have no and idea maybe where some of you are, are driving on that road right now and you can just tell us about what that means. Yeah, follow it. I need somebody to Go on that road and tell us where it goes, because I have no idea. Is that is that a town or I don't know. That, so tell us. Um, keep telling your story, Valerie. Yeah. So so I grew up in Southern California in um, a little desert town, and um, I just had a pretty. I think I had a pretty normal childhood. I was raised LDS. Um, my dad is a convert, but my mom is not. My mom is an old pioneer family, um, and. Uh, so, uh, you know, for most LDS people who were, you know, in Utah or wherever you're from, if you were born and raised LDS, I probably had a very similar childhood to you. Um, just going to school and, and, and doing <laughs> child things. Um, but then when I was about 16, I decided I had had enough of that desert and I wanted to move to this desert up here in Utah. So my sister was, my oldest sister was living up here. And I moved up here with her. And then my parents and all the rest of my family followed pretty quickly after that. So we actually all moved up to Utah eventually. I have um, six brothers and sisters. Wow. So yeah, I, w- I grew up in a big family and I am the second to youngest. So, and I was the youngest for eight years and then my brother was born. Wow. So I still f- identify as the youngest child. <laughs> I know what it's like to be the youngest child for yeah. long enough to know what being spoiled like that is like, you know? Um, and then let's see, when I, when I moved up to Utah, um, I just kind of did the normal things. I started college. I went to the LDS business college and, um, I dated a little bit. I had a roommate, um, just did all the normal things. But one a normal thing that I did was I got married really, really young. I got married at 18. I was almost 19. And I actually asked him if he could wait till I was 19 and he didn't want to wait. <laughs> so we compromised and we got married two months before I turned 19. Um, not that that really would have made any difference in hindsight now that I think about it. It wouldn't have really made any difference. I would still be just as immature as I was at 18. But um, I took a lot of flack for that, for getting married really young. I got teased a lot about from that. From who? From my family, from people I worked with, from my husband's family. I still get jokes every once in a while that I got married when I was 16, that sort of thing. So I I thought that was interesting. I thought that was a pretty common thing for LDS girls to get married young. How does that make how does that make you feel? Does it make for I've never thought about someone married at eighteen and the things I might say that might actually add to their load. Well, like, like I, maybe it makes your marriage feel less legitimate because you were too young to know if it was right or not. I don't know what some of those feel comments like that and sometimes, for, yeah. So, um, at first, uh, we did not have a honeymoon stage in our marriage. Our first year of marriage was really, really hard. It's honest really hard. Um, yeah, like usual. And so that was hard. And I don't think people realize that is that by them teasing me about the age I got married, I felt like maybe I shouldn't have gotten married. Maybe this wasn't right. Maybe 
you know, I made the wrong choice. Maybe I should end this. Like, and, and that went on for quite a while. Um, until I had my daughter, we waited five years to have a baby because I may have gotten married young, but I wasn't in a rush to become a young mother. Um, and then it kind of stopped and I, I didn't, you know, people stopped making fun of me for that. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was an extra burden on our marriage when we were having problems because I would always wonder, is that why we're having problems is because I got married too young and looking back 17 years later. Yeah, probably (laughs) I wouldn't recommend anyone get married at 18, honestly. Um, uh, it worked out for us. We're still married. We worked through it, but it's not something that I would, uh, tell people to go ahead and do without some really serious consideration. I like so. that answer. And I, I think that every marriage, I hope every marriage succeeds. And I wouldn't look back and think that a marriage at 18 would be less likely to succeed. I don't know if there's any research that says younger marriage is less likely to succeed, but I would just hope all of us look at every marriage and hope it succeeds and not right. try to, see potentially why it might be a more difficult situation and add to someone's burden because you wanted to make your marriage succeed, your husband, and it did succeed and you've got kids now. Um, So yeah, that's just a good insight. Yeah. And there's things that would have been easier if we were older and more mature, you know, well, my husband actually is older. He's four years older than me. So he was probably, he was probably ready to get married. Um, But I don't think that I was, I, I kind of rushed that stage of my life quite a bit. Um, I had graduated from high school early and I was a bit more mature than most of the kids my age. And so I wonder if I just gave myself a false sense of, you know, oh, you're ready for this, (laughs) you know? Um, but yeah, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm going, Going, continuing with and that. Tell, but. <laughs> us, tell us the age of your kids right now. So I have a 14-year-old daughter. She just barely turned 14 and a 10-year-old son and a 5-year-old daughter. Okay, so two girls and a boy. Mm-hmm. And talk then um, about this 14-year period where you left the workforce and raised kids 24-7. Yeah. And just bring our listeners to what it's like to be, and I don't know what title you like to use, a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. I don't, that title almost, I've never thought about that title, but it almost seems like, I hope no one says I'm a stay-at-home mom and sort of feels like I could be judged for saying that. Oh, I feel absolutely. like I'm a second-class woman Oh, that's society. definitely never a feeling. i thought about that, but yeah, share with that. Then that's with definitely listeners. a feeling that I know lots of stay-at-home moms have. And stay-at-home mom does not encompass what that person does um, enough. Uh, I mean, you're you're a chauffeur, you're a nurse, you're a maid, you're a cook, you're a counselor, you're everything. And then we condense it down into stay-at-home mom, you know. Do you have a better title? No. <laughs> I, I've never really thought about it that much. Um, I just know that default thing. It seems like, um, well, we used to call them homemakers and that's almost a better title. Um, because you're making a home for your family. It's interesting. Um, but I still don't think that's enough of a title either. Maybe just 
just mother is a pretty powerful word. That's, that's a, a pretty good, powerful word. That's a good title. <laughs> yeah. Tell us more but, what it's like to be a mother. Well, you know, my, I started out pretty average with my first child. Everything went as expected. And, uh, that first year when my first daughter was a year old, I have the most tender, fond memories of that time of my life. It was though that year went by really, really fast because you know how fast kids grow. But um, also it was just, I think, one of the best years of my life. Um, just staying with her and just experiencing all of that for the first time. Second child, not so beautiful and soft focus and <laughs> sparkly. I got really, really sick with my second one. And also my first one was becoming a toddler. And that was really hard. I was not prepared for toddler at all. I just kept thinking, what happened to my beautiful, sweet baby? Where did she go? Because <laughs> um, she was really, really hard, as all toddlers are, as I know now. Um, but I got really, really sick with my second one. And my my health went downhill really, really fast after that pregnancy. Physical or emotional? Both, both. So before I had him, I had my tonsils taken out um, at a really old age, Um and then when I got pregnant with him, within the first few months with all the blood tests and stuff they do, they discovered that I had um, hypothyroid. And lots of people have hypothyroid, but when you're pregnant, it's really hard to manage because your body needs a ton of that hormone to keep you going. It runs practically every cell in your body. No, I mean every cell, not practically. And, um, and so I wasn't on the right dosage, and so I felt really, really ill racing heart and anxiety and all these problems and chronic, chronic fatigue, just so tired. I couldn't do anything. I could barely take care of my other child. Um, and that was really, really hard. That was, I was felt really isolated. That was the beginning of my mental health issues because that was the first time in my life where I couldn't just do whatever I wanted to do. You know, I had limited energy and what energy I had, had to go to my family, you know, um, before that, before I got pregnant with him, I was doing a jewelry making business with my best friend. We were making and selling jewelry and doing parties and stuff. And we were having fun. Um, but then I got really sick and she actually got sick at the same time with something else. But, and so that all fell apart, but that was a really difficult period in my life. And that was the beginning of all the downhill and difficult stuff that I had been going through for the last 10 years. Uh, so then for a long time, we thought he would be our last child that we'd only have two because it was so difficult to get him there. And I had postpartum depression after I had him. I had what uh, is postpartum depression? So postpartum depression is just, I mean, your hormones are messed up really bad after you have a baby. And uh, I didn't have it with my first. So it kind of uh, was surprising with my second. I didn't really know what was going on. I had heard about it, but I, uh, sometimes you don't realize what's going on with, especially if you are mentally ill, you don't know what's going on with you. Right. Um, you're just living life and just like doing your best. Right. Um, so it was actually my husband who mentioned that I was like really depressed and I was like, wow, yeah, I am really 
depressed. I don't feel good. I haven't felt good for a long time. I still don't have energy. And I've got this baby that I'm trying to feed and, and take care of and a toddler. And, um, and he was a really hard baby. He didn't want to sleep. He didn't want to eat. So all that stress just compounded all the issues that I was having. And my thyroid issue didn't go away either. Um, so I was still dealing with that. There's a lot of side effects to that as well. Um, so we thought, we thought he would be our last, but then we had an oops baby and, and that baby didn't make it. We had a miscarriage and that kind of woke us up that, um, we were missing a child in our lives. Like we needed to have one more. Um, but that, that miscarriage you, you can have postpartum from a miscarriage as well. And I did. So on top of having, um, the pain of losing a baby, um, I was having like a postpartum depression type of issue. Um, and our marriage was rocky. So, so rocky then. It's honest. Um, and, uh, but then we, we, we worked that out and we decided, you know what, let's, let's have another one. And so we did. So my last two are almost five years apart because we didn't think we would have any more kids. I thought I was at my, my limit and I probably was, <laughs> but you know, the Lord has other plans for us that we have for ourselves. He, you know, he likes to stretch our limits to, to what, see, see how far <laughs> we can go, how much we can learn, right. From our trials. Um, just back to your miscarriage. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, we have never had a miscarriage in our, we have six children. We never had a miscarriage. And so it's a, it's a road that I don't know. Obviously as a man, I wouldn't know um, what that's like, but not even as a partner to my wife. But I love that you t- said the word loss of losing a baby. So you use the word baby with miscarriage. And I like that. I, I, I think I would approach someone's lost a miscarriage as a as a loss much different than losing a full term child right. at birth, um, and so maybe my empathy and my willingness to recognize the pain would be proportional to that sort of assumption I'd make. Right. And when you use the word baby right there, Valerie, I thought, wow, that's a human being that you lost. Right, and and that's very astute of you to pick out because that is something that um when I was going through that we just asked people not to talk to us about it at all we said this is what happened we want you to know this is why we're struggling right now but please just don't ask us any questions because I knew that people wouldn't see it the way we saw it because tell us the way you saw it because I had been there wondering about people why are they so upset over their miscarriage it's not like they lost a real baby and then when it happened to me I did realize that you do lose a real baby because there's that potential for a child there as soon as you find out you're pregnant you start thinking about baby names and planning you know your life with that person and you know a due date Mm -hmm. and so you're planning a due date right and it doesn't really matter how early on in your pregnancy you lose that baby. If you know you're pregnant, you've you've already taken a spirit into your life, right? Um, and and into your future. You you see a future with that person, and so 
I, and I don't think people who haven't had a miscarriage think of it that way at all. They just think, um, cause it's not happening to them. They don't see it as a person. They don't maybe not even see it as a baby unless I've heard people make comments about, well, it would be one thing if you were like in your last trimester or something like that. And that's, that's just not how it is when you're carrying a life inside of you. When I had my first two children, my first daughter, I knew she was a girl from the moment I found out I was pregnant. I knew she was a girl. And when they told me on the ultrasound, I said, I know, I knew she was a girl. And I knew my son was a boy. And I know that the baby I lost was a girl. And I know that my last daughter was a girl before I ever found out. You just, you just, I don't know if it's like this for everyone. I don't think it is. But for me, that's how it was. I, I knew them before. I was waiting for them. Do you think you have four spirit children or three children? I mean, do you think that, That's a do good you want question. to share that on the podcast that because you mentioned they're the same gender, the miscarriage being female and right. and your last and daughter being female. Do you have an answer for that? or is I that don't nice? have an answer to that. I don't know. I don't know when life starts. I don't know. I feel like I haven't had um, a definitive answer that. I have a child in heaven that belongs to our family. I feel like, though, that I do. I feel like I have a daughter that I lost. Um, I've read books about um, people who have had near-death experiences and have met siblings or aunts, uncles, family members who died before they were born in heaven. So I have hope you know, that, that, um, but I don't know for sure. It's, it's interesting. Every one of these episodes opens my mind to something I've never thought about very much. <laughs> I've never been in the miscarriage space. Yeah. I'm aware it exists. <laughs> um, but you're teaching me about some things I've never thought before. I recognize that my proportional grieving would be when someone has a miscarriage, I want to know how far along they were. Right. And I know that I grieve or show more empathy if it's further along than if it's early. And I love the way you said, as soon as you conceive, you're planning the future for that child. And so my grief for you, my support for you, a platitude would be, Eric Huntsman taught me this on an earlier podcast about a platitude is something that I say that really just keeps me emotionally safe and doesn't do anything to help lift your burden. Like, oh, mm -hmm. it's all for your good, Valerie, or that spirit is waiting to come in the next body. And um, and so that may kind of keep me emotionally safe, but doesn't allow me to fully understand the pain that you're feeling. Um, and when you talked about, even when you answered that question, I don't know, I think I would have thought, well, that third child, that third spirit just became your fourth child. And that that miscarriage is just sort of now over. But I love the way you opened the door, and I'm not communicating this for a while. I love that you opened the door that, no, that that spirit may be very different than my than right. the next birth. We don't it's, recycle spirits, right? We don't recycle spirits. I mean, once you come to earth, that's it. And so, and then if if I recognize that that's a spirit that, that was their mortal experience was this period of time in your womb. 
um, for how many weeks that spirit was in your womb, then I recognize that could very well be a, a spirit. It's that's you know I don't know where our doctrine exactly. Right. There's not I don't think there's a definitive answer, but yeah, then it's easier for me to better mourn with you if I recognize that that's a spirit that you'll never yeah. get a chance to raise, and it's not just the next conceived yeah. pregnancy. And of course, it's easier than someone who held their child or raised their child. Of course, it's easier because I didn't develop memories uh -huh. um, with this person, right? Um, but that doesn't mean it's easy, you know? It doesn't mean that... Um, it doesn't mean that you can just forget about it, you know? What's the best thing if, it sounds like you were kind of careful not to talk about it, but if I'm your father or your brother or a neighbor down the street or your priesthood leader, what's and I'm aware you have a miscarriage, what would be helpful things that I could say? I think um, if you treat it as someone who did just lose a child um, with that sort of... Um, being careful like that, I think you would be on the right track. Um, I've talked to other women who have lost babies and, um, and I think they would agree that, and, and that's the thing is it's like, um, it's like a hidden thing a that only, thing. and, and I think like you were saying, you want to know how far along with somebody, then your, um, empathy goes up for them. But, but don't forget that, you know, a lot of women feel as soon as they're pregnant, you know, you know, you're pregnant. Um, just because you're not showing doesn't mean that there's not a life growing inside of you. So, um, treat it as if, as if she did lose her baby at 24 weeks, at 30 weeks, at 40 weeks. So if you, uh, if you lost your baby at full term, um, in the birth process, we have funerals. And we bury that child and have a grave. And there's a, a societal mm -hmm. marker of that. People come together to mourn. Um, I reckon, I don't know everything that may or may not occur in a miscarriage, but I think generally there's that, not that type of closure. No, Is that there's correct? not. That's right. There's not. Yeah, and that is a difficult part about it. Is there? There is no closure for a lot of women until... And a lot of people think and say, oh, you can just have another one. And that's true. Um, but for some reason for me, it just wasn't that easy. And I did have another one, but I still think about that baby. I Does still that baby have a name? No. No, I was very early. I was very early. And so a lot of people were really shocked with how hard I took it. And then they might say something that would just add to your burden because they recognize you're grieving. Right. What, what would they say that would just add to your burden? Um, well, like I said, you can just have another one. Mm -hmm. um, it's not some a big deal. Some people will say things like, um, well, it probably wasn't even um, a viable child. Um, or it's, How did that make you feel when someone said that? Because um, I might have people say that. I It feels like they're dismissing your pain is what that does. It's a platitude. Yeah. Um, some people would say, um, like, well, you know, there must've been something wrong with it. So it's a good thing, that sort of thing. Um, 
yes, lots of platitudes that don't really make you feel any better at all. And probably the best thing somebody could have said to me is, um, is that, you know, your, your child is, is with Jesus Christ now and they didn't have to live, uh, life of pain and suffering and sorrow like the rest of us because they're a special spirit and um i mean what else can you say (laughs) i assume as a grandfather we'll learn about this road even though it didn't happen as we were raising our own kids and and just people in my life that i love so thank you for helping me better understand this space and our listeners and sharing a little bit about your journey there yeah um I I want to kind of divide this, but we're about the 30-minute mark, so I want to talk about Cedar Fort. Um, talk about, as we transition to Cedar Fort, this feeling of feeling stuck. Okay. And wanting to do something. Okay. I don't know what better. No, I don't want to yeah. say better, just different. And right. why you didn't com- maybe co- always feel completely fulfilled. Right. Well, I mean, of course I love my children. And the reason why my husband and I decided that I needed to stay home was because we just felt like that was the right thing to do. That was the best thing to do. But I had to sacrifice a lot of things. I, um, I quit going to school so that my husband could finish school so that we would have an income to live off of, you know, a decent income. Um, and there, I tried lots of things. I tried, like I said, I did like a jewelry business. I tried to sell hot cocoa. I ran awesome. my husband's um, trucking company. I did, oh, I've got a list here because I always forget. I tried so many things. I did, I tried to be a personal trainer. Um, I started writing books. I did get one published finally, which is how I ended up with Cedar Fort. Um, I even ran a mini farm trying to keep myself busy. That's awesome. I don't, I have a lot of interests. And, um, I really love learning and I like trying new things. And so I just kept trying new things to keep myself, um, my brain occupied because raising children isn't exactly, you know, occupying that part of your brain. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of days where you feel really isolated. You don't talk to any adults except for when your husband gets home or if you call somebody on the phone. Um, and, I don't think, I, I think that's, I don't know if it was just my personality and my choice that I ended up like that. I feel like a lot of other women I've heard talk about that situation. They feel the same way. They feel really isolated and social media and stuff doesn't help because now you're not leaving the house to go talk to your friends. Um, and people are ordering groceries online. So you're not running into people and talking to them in the store and, you know, that sort of thing. You may only talk to uh, adults on Sunday as if you're not in primary, primary or nursery, yeah, nursery <laughs> exactly, or young women's even. Um, so yeah, there's just like a lot of isolation. It can get, and then you have all the pressures and, and issues with just raising kids, you know, on top of that, that just make you feel um, really isolated. And then I had health problems on top of that. And I had, I have, um, I have invisible diseases, so I don't look sick. I don't act sick, Interesting. but I have, I have problems. I had, um, my five, my, um, hypothyroid 
actually turned out to be something called Hashimoto's. And it's still a thyroid condition, but it's an autoimmune thyroid condition. And what that means is that my body attacks my thyroid and it also makes um, antibodies so that for some reason, my body will not be able to use um, the thyroid hormone that it does make or that I take. Um, and so, uh, <clears throat> and with that came a lot of um, depression issues. It causes depression. Anybody listening who has Hashimoto's, um, if you have depression, it's probably your Hashimoto's. If you have chronic pain, it's probably your Hashimoto's. If you have chronic fatigue, it's probably your Hashimoto's. It causes a ton of problems. And then on top of that, um, I got fibromyalgia. And fibromyalgia is a chronic pain condition. And you just have pain. And it's just like, you can't touch things. If I bumped into a wall or if I sat on a hard chair. Two years ago, I wouldn't be able to sit on this chair, Richard. It's a hard chair. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm fine today. Thank goodness I'm in remission of that. But um, I had that on top of trying to raise little kids, you know, and then being isolated and not having anybody understand. My husband always gone. Um, and then all the depression and issues that came with that. But, you know, what I did was I have always felt really strongly that... Um, our bodies have ways of healing themselves. And um, I'm not saying that if you are on depression or anxiety medications, you should get off of them or anything. You need to work with a doctor for this. But for me, I worked really hard on cleaning up my diet and finding um, supplements and things that I could do that would help. I never once went on medication for any of those problems. Um, I just tried everything natural that I could. And I'm not a, I'm not a natural like guru or anything. Like I don't only eat salad and stuff, but <laughs> I, I just really felt like I had seen people get on those medications and not be helped at all and end up having to try medication after medication after medication with side effects. And, um, with, with the supplements I took, I, I was able to mitigate those side effects better. Um, and while we're on that topic, just because for your listeners, if they are in Salt Lake and they are having these problems and they need to get help and you don't want to go the traditional medicine route, because I, I know it works for some people, but if it worked for everybody, there wouldn't be alternatives. Right. Um, so if you are in Salt Lake, you can go to, um, Dr. Kate Miyagi in Salt Lake city. She was a wonderful doctor that I saw for many years and helped me with a lot of those problems. Um, and in Utah County, there's a place called Integrative Medical Associates, and they do the same things. That's who I go see now because I live in Utah County now. And um, they helped me with a lot of other problems that I had. Um, and uh, there's a book that I think everybody should check out. This one's not by Cedar Fort, sorry. But <laughs> it's called Mood Cure by Julia Ross and she's a therapist and she um, she talks about what your symptoms are in terms of like your mood problems or your depression, anxiety and that sort of thing. And then what um, amino acids you may be lacking in your diet. Some people are just lacking amino acids because their body doesn't absorb them property, properly. Some of them are lacking them because they don't eat 
properly. Um, And then some people just don't have enough for how stressful their life is. Your brain runs off of amino acids, which are basically little pieces of protein, right? It's broken down proteins. And some people you're, you may be in so much stress, your brain is burning those up and using those faster than you can replace them or your body can make them from your food. So she talks about all the supplements you can take. And I used her book and it, it saved my life. I definitely would have ended up, um, well, I don't know where I would have ended up if I hadn't, you know, used the protocols in her book to help me. Um, but I know you want to get to Cedar Fort. We'll get there. (laughs) Um, I'm a husband, um, and you've got a husband and I'm not a perfect husband and look back at my life and at times didn't fully meet the needs of my wife. What, what did your husband do good during this time? Well, um, just he, for our listeners that want to, you know, do better. He always made sure that he was working and was supporting the family. You know, um, that's a very important role of a husband. If you have a wife who stays home with the kids is you've got to always have paychecks coming in to support everybody. Right. Um, and, Honestly, I don't think he knew what to do with me. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of husbands that don't. And I've heard of a lot of marriages that end. And I've heard a lot of them say things like, she was crazy. She wouldn't take her medications. And that just breaks my heart and makes me a little bit angry. Um, because when you do have a mental illness like that, you don't know what you're doing. You can't expect somebody who's mentally ill to take care of themselves. You know, um, you, you just can't. That's that's not an expectation you should have. So I, f- I feel so bad when I hear those stories and I just think, oh, man, I wish I could have gotten to them first and helped her her get um, her problems under control before it ended their marriage. Um, my husband knows better now. <laughs> Um, but honestly, he didn't really have a lot of tools. Yeah, exactly. It's probably the way most men are. It's the way I was. Right. Am and, but that's why it's good. You're telling your story. Yeah. And I get it. I get like, you know, when a woman gets crazy, it can be a really scary thing, something you don't want to deal with. Um, and there could be, you know, no intimacy and she's fighting with you all the time. And maybe you feel like she's not doing, pulling her weight, keeping the house clean. And, you know, I get it. But um, a lot of times these issues that we think are like marriage issues or an issue with the person's personality, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're mental health issues. And if you can get to the bottom of those and find out, you know, why, why are they gaining so much weight? Why don't they want to exercise? Maybe it's not because they're lazy. Maybe they have absolutely no energy. Maybe they have no emotional energy, no mental energy, you know, to do these things. And get, dig down to the bottom of, I mean, we're basically just biological machines. That's how Heavenly Father made us. And machines can be fixed. And we happen to be um, amazing little miracle machines that can fix ourselves if given the right tools and materials to do so. That's great. Talk about, yeah, you. I love the way you're trying lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the variety of everything that you've tried. And have done. And now tell us how you found Cedar Fort and what you do at Cedar Fort. 
So one of the things that I tried was writing and I had never had any ambition to write at all. I thought I couldn't write actually. I had some fun in a creative writing class in college once a million years ago. Um, but I, I just didn't think I could write, but I always had like a running dialogue in my head, like telling myself a story. And I realize now that's not normal. Um, and uh, my sister, my whole family is very, very talented and very creative in um, artistic ways. And my sister, who is also very talented, but in different ways than the rest of us, um, wrote a story. And I thought, well, gosh, if she can do it, <laughs> I am at least as creative as her, if not more, then I can do it. Um, and I loved reading and stuff. So... I started writing stories and my first few were really, really bad, um, which is how, how it is. If you got to practice anything that you do, you got to practice. And then I, I finally wrote one that I felt like maybe I could send this off to some publishers. I think it's polished enough. I think it's good enough. People are enjoying reading the little chapters and stuff that I've been sending them. So I did. And then 13 days later, I heard back from Cedar Fort and they wanted to publish it. Wow. So that brought me into this whole new world that I never expected to be in. Never, ever in my life thought, you know, up until like two weeks before I submitted it, that I would ever publish a book. Even after I submitted it, I was like, this isn't going to get published. I'm just doing this for fun. You know, just want to see, you want to get the feedback. What do people think about it? Um and so that was that was an interesting journey, uh, learning about publishing and being a writer and feeling like a fraud <laughs> because I hadn't most writers have been writing their whole lives. They have these ambitions to be a writer since they're little kids, you know, and I just didn't. And so um, but I'm so glad it happened because I do love writing a lot because writing is just so if you are a really creative person, writing is so fulfilling because you can create anything in writing. Obviously, the sky's the limit. Whatever you can come up with, you can put in a story, right? Um, but uh, because of that, I was I was trying to figure out a way to market my book, and um, I thought, well, maybe I could do a podcast because I I really enjoy talking to people about everything. I just want to know everything. I just have a really bad thirst for, for knowledge and to pick people's brains and stuff. Um, and, uh, so, so I, I, I got a bunch of authors from Cedar Fort because we kind of have a collaboration area on that we can all get together and online and talk to each other. And, um, everybody wanted to do it because everybody really needed help marketing their books as well. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. And <laughs> that's how I do pretty much everything that awesome. I do. I'm just like, I decide I'm interested in something and then I just do it. I don't, um, I just figure it out as I go, you know, how hard can it be? Right. <laughs> so I, I contacted the owner of Cedar Fort because I, I was wondering if, well, maybe these new authors, like I was just a few months ago could use some help with marketing as well, you know? Um, well, he, he wanted to talk to me about it. So I went into his office and we talked about it for a while. And then, um, at, 
when I was leaving, he was like, well, you know, I should, I probably should just hire you to run our podcast. Cause they had just barely started doing one. He had recorded one with Dennis Schleicher, who I know has been on your podcast and they hadn't done anything with it yet though. <laughs> He's busy. Yeah. He's running a company. Right. Exactly. Um, so long story short, a few meetings later, um, he hired me on full time wow. as, um, the podcast. But what's funny about that is, um, he had never heard me do a podcast. Um, he, he didn't even know like what, what book I had published. <laughs> he didn't really know that much about me. I guess he just liked talking to me and figured, okay, well she can talk. So <laughs> that's great. And, and, and one thing, one aspect of that is that, um, a lot of fiction writers have are intro, very in, introverted people. And, um, and so he wanted somebody that was not so introverted that could work with the fiction writers, um, and kind of bridge that gap between them. And then, you know, the nonfiction writers, um, like yourself, a lot of nonfiction writers have a lot more to say um, in, in the real world, <laughs> you know, cause that's what your books are based off of is your real life and stuff. So you have lots and lots to talk about. So that's how I ended up at Cedar Fort. And, and our podcast is just basically about, tell us the name of your, tell us the name of your podcast and also just mention the name of your book. It's, um, oh, the name of my book is enduring promises of the heart. And, um, the podcast is called Cedar Fort publishing and media behind the scenes. Cool. And kind of the whole premise of that podcast is because we are a publishing company. Um, we're kind of just delving in deeper into um, authors' lives and, and what they know and just beyond what's in the books, really. We do talk about books a lot, about their books and what's in them. But um, I like to dig a little bit deeper than that and try to figure out, like, um, how these topics in their books relate to everyone, you know? Um, one thing I've just recently started doing, which I just love is having like a round table discussion podcast with several authors that have similar books and similar themes. And, uh, I just did one on near death experiences and that was so amazing. Oh. I've been obsessed with near death experiences for a long time. Um, and then, so to talk to these authors who two of them had had near death experiences and one of them is Lee Nelson and he writes the, um, compilation books. He's written like three of them, I think of near death experiences that people send him. And not only was it just incredibly interesting to hear these stories and, and what it was like from the person who died and then came back to life, you know, um, but so not only was it incredibly interesting to to hear that, but we also could feel the spirit so strongly in that room when we were talking about it, just testifying to us that um, these were important stories that really, that people need to hear because they can strengthen people's testimonies and enrich their lives. And that's kind of the whole thing about Cedar Fort, period. Um, Cedar Fort is a LDS publisher but they're not affiliated with the church. And so, um, I mean, they're the main goal at Cedar Fort is, is just to change people's lives with books. And I just, I love that. It's a great thing. I love that. And a lot of the authors that I talk to are very humble and they don't write their books to become famous. They just want to 
share their story. They, a lot of them feel like if I could just help one person, then it was worth it. Uh, all the trouble of, you know, writing this book and getting it published and everything is worth it. And I love that. I love that so much. I love that near-death experience and the round table, everybody discussing that. And <clears throat> I love just what you're trying to accomplish at Cedar Fort. That's really cool. Yeah. Which and, brings us to you. Uh-oh. <laughs> and your book coming out soon. Um, I I think that's amazing what your book is about. And I if I if we have time, I'd like to share an experience I had with the podcast. Yes, and that relates to the topic of your book, not your book necessarily, but yeah, um, is that with Becky McIntosh? Yes, and it was it was my second ever recording, um, first day on the job, <laughs> and um, Becky's just the sweetest, and um, and she she talks very fast. She knows what she wants to say, right, and um. We had a lot of, you have to be, I'm working for a company, right? So I have to be careful what I'm putting on the podcast. And so we had a lot of um, off the air um, or what was the term off the record um, conversations about it as well, because uh, I had a lot of questions for her. I just, um, I know a, a couple um, LGBTQ people, but it's just not really a part of my life. I just don't know a lot of them. And those that I do know, we don't really talk about it. And, um, I just know what I, I grew up with, you know, and even in really liberal Southern California in the nineties growing up, we didn't, we didn't, um, we didn't look kindly upon, upon that sort of thing. You know, we didn't, we tried not to talk about it. Um, and that was just kind of something I had carried on throughout my life is I didn't want to talk about it with my kids. I didn't want to bring it up. If they brought it up, I would try to explain it to them the best I could. I had it all planned out and say, you know, well, we should love everybody and treat them kindly, but we don't believe in that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But after talking to Becky, um, I went home and uh, I talked to her for about two hours. Wow. Her podcast was about an hour and 15 minutes and the rest of that, that other 45 minutes was just us talking. And um, she answered a lot of questions for me just very candidly. And so when I went home, I was like, I was drained. I was like emotionally drained from that podcast. And I, I just started crying. And my husband's like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know if I can do this job, if it's going to be like this every time, if I come home crying, which actually many of them have really touched me. And I have you know, been gone home crying. Um, but, uh, I wasn't really sure what was going on with me though. Like, why was I crying? You know, I just, it wasn't because of her story or anything. I wasn't like feeling pity or sadness for her anything. And it just got worse and worse and worse. So I was, I was having such bad anxiety and still crying so much. I left the house cause I didn't want my kids to see me and be like, what's wrong with mom? Um, and I ended up at the park uh, under a tree, uh, the only place I could find where I could like be alone to sob. And, and I just started praying, what, what's happening to me, Heavenly Father? And it just, he spoke to my heart that I, I've changed you. I've changed your heart. And it's just too fast for you to process right now. And it's just going to take time. And 
Um, I wasn't even sure what that meant. What, like, what did you do to my heart? What changed? I don't know. And, I, and I've, I've learned really over the, the next few weeks and months and stuff that um, I just wasn't seeing people, those people, the way that Heavenly Father saw them. Um, I was doing my best, but I w- it was like, I just didn't know what I didn't know, you know? And um, I, so my, my heart just changed so rapidly for, and how my empathy for them grew uh, like the Grinch's heart. Like was, what does it say? His heart grew five yeah. times. <laughs> and that's basically what happened to me. It was the most amazing experience. And now I've realized, and because we, we, we talked to a lot of people at Cedar Fort that have, you know, that are LGBTQ. We have lots of books coming out yeah. and, or have just come out. And um, I've realized that there was a fear that I used to have about it that is is gone now. Um, and it's been replaced with just love and empathy. And I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> That's That was an unplanned segment. I didn't know that story before we went live. We haven't visited too long. And that's a pretty tender story for me because it, it's my experience. I feel like mm-hmm. this is what happened to me as a YSA bishop when I had priesthood responsibility for gay Latter-day Saint. And, and I was sort of faced to be open to what I can do to minister. And it's a parallel story to my story and many others. And a lot of you listeners, it's this very podcast, not my efforts, but the LGBT people come on and share their stories that are changed. They change my heart as I listen to them. But there's a few things. I love what you said about the personal revelation you got of changing your heart, but the the dissidents perhaps generated just some emotional manifestations and tears. Yeah. In a, not a negative way, but just, and I love the way that you, you I love the way, how you handled that is I know I just need to kind of be on my own and I need to say a prayer. And I love your personal revelation there. And I love this line you've said, I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. That resonates with me. And now I still probably want to be teachable enough about the LGBTQ space and like I'm learning tonight about um, just miscarriages that mm-hmm. I want to, I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. And we have to hear stories so that we understand. And then I love um, all the fear is gone. And that's, I love perfect love cast without fear. That's one of our core scriptures in our faith. And I don't, I don't fear LGBTQ people. I fear ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> I fear people that sell their children to sex trafficking and people that traffic. There's great evil in the world. Right. Not saying we shouldn't recognize evil in the world, but just a blanket fear of LGBTQ people to me is more culturally society-based than in reality. Right. So yeah, there's LGBTQ people that probably want and there's straight people that probably would negatively impact my life, but sort of just pin that on right. one group of people isn't fair. Right. And we know. just we just don't know enough about, you know, why this happens, how this happens. Yeah. Um, we just we just don't know. So let's let's not um let's not make rash de- decisions and treat people a certain way based off of fear, you know. But to me, you represent just the, I was going to say the typical Latter-day Saint. I don't know if it no, is I, typical. No, I agree with you. But I, I think it is your typical. story is I've 
I'm aware of this issue. I, this is how I'd handle it with my children. I'm a, I have a couple people in my life. But I just think that a lot of Latter-day Saints and good people around the world want to do the right thing. And when they sort of take the time to understand this issue, their hearts move in the right direction because their core heart is good. Right. And their values are good and they want to do the right thing and they have good foundation Christian principles. And so what what's happened for you, I've seen happen to so many people. And to me, that gives me great hope for the future and for LGBTQ people, for um, the rest of us to not only help lift their burden, but really see their gifts and their contributions to society and how they can help us. I, in some ways, have been rescued by LGBTQ people because the things they teach me mm-hmm. um, versus me just always being the rescuer. So that's a great thing. You, that's really wonderful what you've shared with us. One One thing I'd like to say about that is... Part of, part of I think the, the problem, if if we want to call it a problem, why um, there is this divide between LDS and LGBTQ. I mean, besides the doctrinal, is that um, people are worried about, and this is what Becky and I talked about, is um, condoning the behavior or something. Um, if you knew somebody had cheated on their wife would you ostracize them that completely like people do when they find out that their son is gay and kick him out of the house? You know, um, would you do that to your son if you found out he cheated on his wife? No, you wouldn't do that. And we have this, there, there's no, uh, there's no sliding scale for sin, right? Um, we can't just say, oh, well, LGBTQ is the worst sin there possibly is, and you must get them out of your house. It's not. It's not like that at all. Um, they're still the same person they were before they came out to you, you know, and um, I think it's that condoning thing that is it, is what really hangs people up because they feel like, oh, well, if, he's, if he or she is living in my home, then people are going to think that I condone this lifestyle or something. And that's not what it means at all. That's the other person's problem. If they see you and they think you're condoning it just because you're showing love to your and support to your child, um, that's their problem. That's not, that's not your problem with the Lord at all. So. I love that. And that's a kind of a key part. One of the myths or one of the parts of the book that I'm working on talks about that very issue. And, and I bring in, I have formed a Facebook group of LDS parents like Becky with LGBTQ kids or, you you know, family members. Not everybody's a kid that's LGBTQ, but, and we, we talk a lot about that. And it's interesting to hear the parents' statements of how they navigated that. And one mm-hmm. parent, one parent said, this is, you know, this has been the hardest thing for me to figure out. And then she talked about the revelation she got, you know, we, we would, most Latter-day Saints would easily go to the uh, infant baptism of their friend in another faith. And that's, you know, the Book of Mormon's pretty hard on infant mm-hmm. baptism. And and even post about that on social media. I, I went to an infant baptism, my friend, here's a picture of the infant. And we wouldn't worry about condoning in that. And that's doctrine that's different than our church. And that was a pretty good parallel to me of what you know, and that for her, that was kind of, okay, now I get it. I can, you know, I can support people and in their individual choices. I don't invite people to have an infant baptism. I don't invite people to, 
enter into same-sex marriages, but if, if they're going to self-determine that's the right road for them or their road, I'm just going to leave judgment the Savior's feet, and I'm going right. to do what the gospel teaches us to do is love. Right. And I think a lot of Latter-day Saints are trying to figure that out. Yeah. And so that's why I'm glad Becky's book, because I think, I think our listeners may know Becky's backstory. Her and her husband, Scott, are active LDS, really faithful, and they've got their wonderful son, Sean, who's gay. Yeah. And Sean has married Carson in a same-sex marriage. They're both returned missionaries. They both together have been on the podcast um, and shared their story. But, you know, how do you handle that as parents? Do you go to the wedding? Do you financially support the wedding the same way you do your straight kids? Do you have a shower like you do your straight kids? And and as you know, because Cedar Fort published the book, they just decided to treat this marriage as any other marriage in their family. Right. And I think their greatest goal in doing that was to keep the family circled together. Right. And to me, they didn't sell out any doctrine to do that. Some would say, well, they gave up the doctrine. I would say, no, they they didn't sell out our doctrine. Our doctrine is to keep the family circled together. Right. And, you know, so that's the way I've kind of reconciled it as I've been in this space. Any thoughts on that or how does that sit with you? Yeah, I I think Becky is such a great example of, and I know she she admits herself that she didn't handle everything perfectly. I love the way she's honest about that yeah. in the book. Right, and I mean that's that's great because parents need to hear that exactly, all... exactly. And some of the stuff she says I had never thought about, um, you know, about like uh, how she would say things like, "Well, we need to get your hormones checked," and, and that sort of thing, and. Um, but one one thing that Becky taught me that I, I just, I realized I did believe it, but I had never really understood that I believed it, like I didn't know I believed it, is that um, you can't catch being gay. And I was just like, of course you can't catch being gay, but that's how we're acting, isn't it? That's how people are are treating it as if because your younger child sees their gay older sibling get married, that um, that they're going to marry someone of the same sex. That's not how it works at all. That's not how it works. And, um, yeah, that really opened my eyes and, um, part of that whole, you know, growth of my heart and my empathy from her is just realizing the, the truth and the facts about this. And I think in our culture, we have a really hard time weeding out what are facts and what, are just sensational things that the media likes to say, you know. Um, I think it's great what you do listening to people's stories. And I hope there's lots of people who are LDS who don't have um, gay family members and that sort of thing that are listening so that they can learn. Um, we, we really can't get to the bottom of any of this. And we can't Christ doesn't ask us to follow him blindly. He wants us to learn. That's why he teaches. Um, and we we can learn from other people as well and there's experiences. And so I, I hope people will, will pick up these books that Cedar Fort is putting out. They're not sensational. They're not, nobody's getting rich off of these books. These books are telling true stories about people's lives. And I think there's so much that can be learned 
that you just didn't know that you didn't know. <laughs> Go through just the books that have been released so far from Cedar Fort. So we have um, Becky's book is Love Boldly. And then we have Mike Ramsey's book, which is called My Dad's Muslim, My Mom is a Lesbian, and I'm a Latter-day Saint. Um, so that one's a different take on the whole thing because he's not LGBTQ, but his mother was. And um, and then we have Dennis Schleicher's Is He Nuts? that just came out. Um, and I'm sure as everybody here knows, Dennis is, um, gay and he got baptized, um, after he had come out. So he is, um, living, um, out of the closet as an LDS. Um, I love Dennis. I love him so much. (laughs) He's a really fun person. Um, and then yours, yours is the next one to come out. And I'm excited to see what else we come out with, but we've had three really quickly come out and then yours. So. And it's great. I really am grateful. And I, um, all three of those books have made it into desert book and I'm grateful and it's Siegel and Amazon, I believe. And it's a, I'm grateful for Cedar Fort willing to talk. It's back to your mission statement as a company and what you're trying to do. But, and I'm just grateful that we're able to talk about these. One of the chapters in my book and is it's the chapter that's right now 26,000 words wow. <laughs> for one chapter. And we're my editor and I are working really hard on it, but it's chapter two where we talk about myths. It's just one of yes. the myths you brought up and there's 15 on here. And a lot of the myths, I just talk about the myth and I talk about any church or leader statements that dispel the myth. And most of these there are. And then I bring in stories of parents and stories of our Latter-day Saint LGBTQ members addressing that myth because I don't want the book to be me just kind of telling my story because my story changed by listening to Becky Mm -hmm. or listening to Dennis. Um, And so that's one of the things we're trying to do. And maybe that's a compilation book. I've never thought of that. Yeah. Like you're, you know, so we're bringing in lots of stories um, so people can address these myths like, you know, talking about LGBTQ in school or home will make more LGBTQ people. That's kind of, you know, if we talk about this in school or at home or in church, um, we're going to create more LGBTQ people. Right. And there's fear there. We don't, I don't think any parent, you know, wants an LGBTQ child. Um, I think parents after a while having one are really grateful they have one. It wouldn't change things, but I think there's a lot of fear for parents, you know, because they just recognize an LGBTQ kids has a harder road. Right. And so they want to do everything to kind of insulate from that outcome happening. Right. But it may create fear. And if you've got a closeted LGBTQ person, it may create a lot of mental and stress and anxiety. Right. And you may be in, inadvertently adding to a burden of your own child. So uh, it's fun for me just to hear your personal journey a little bit, just as a faithful Latter-day Saint, a real thoughtful person, as you're just learning about this space too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think you, you think you know something, you think you are on the right path with something and then Heavenly Father needs to teach you something. So he'll (laughs) put something in your way. For me, it was meeting Becky for other, for Becky, it was her son, you know, I think, that uh, we have a lot to learn about love with this issue. I think that's maybe one of the main reasons why this is happening is that um, 
it teaches people a lot about true, true love, Christ-like love, um, how to just accept people the way they are. I, I just, I can't stand the ostracizing thing that's, you know, happens to people because you cannot call yourself a Christian if you, um, if you're not ministering to the sick and the sinners and, you know, you can't, you can't call yourself a Christian if you do that. Um, and that's what's happening. And then all these suicides that are picking up in Utah, that's just awful. It doesn't need to happen. It doesn't need to happen. Yeah. Uh, would you really rather have your child out on the streets with who knows what people, um, than in your home just because they're gay? It just, I never sat right with me even before I had my experience with Becky. Just, I was, had always thought if I did have a gay child, I would not be kicking him out on the street. That's just crazy. Yeah. I probably would have been like Becky though and been like, can we take you to a doctor? <laughs> you know, We parents want to fix things and keep yeah. everything what I call in the nice tidy box. But life doesn't in the nice tidy box as you've talked about your story at home. It hasn't been a nice tidy box experience all the time. Right. And I think as we're honest about that and can talk about that and be vulnerable at times, we heal each other in our, in our yeah. being real versus a, a perfect social media presentation where inside we're just in turmoil. So we can't, some people bravely share it <clears> on the <throat> podcast, but everybody needs to have trusted people in their life where they right. can be real. And I think Satan likes what's happening with social media and stuff because it does isolate us. And I think he just loves that, that we're not having real conversations. We're not visiting with people like we used to. Um, and that feeling of keeping up that appearance for social media where you're not telling people what's going on with you, what your fears are, what's happening in your life. You have to, um, you have to be really brave and uh, reach out to people. And I think I feel bad for, I'm just kind of at the top of that millennial generation that's really struggling with all of this. Um, so I really don't feel a part of it, but technically I am, um, where they're just isolating themselves. And we see increase of suicide and all these depression issues and stuff. And it's like, Oh, Satan's just having a field day with it. He's just really having fun. So. I really agree with that. I, I think Satan's real and wants to destroy us. Um, I think sometimes we use Satan in a manipulative way to kind of drive our agenda forward. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I don't want to disagree with that, but I really agree with what you're, one of Satan's greatest tools is to isolate us, keep us in our shame. Um. Shame says I am bad versus I did something bad. That's mm -hmm. a really important quote to me from Brene Brown. Um, shame says I, I instead of I made a mistake, I am a mistake. Um, and I think that's just one of Satan's greatest tools is to isolate us and keep us in our weaknesses or keep us in yeah. and self-loathing and, and the comparison of social media versus just, I, I just wrote down, I realized that I've gained about 40 pounds since my social media, my little pic I put on social media with my wife and I, it was from our daughter's wedding. And I haven't updated that pic because I'm 40 pounds heavier <laughs> and my wife has gotten a lot skinnier and I've recognized that, you know, 
that's just that is actually a thing for me at age 58 that I haven't updated my pick because I'm a little rounder. And I don't think my listeners are following this podcast based on, you know, that aspect of my life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They can't even see how I look. But the the media makes us feel that way, doesn't it? I mean, I, I was always the skinny, scrawny kid. And then when I started having all my health problems, not only can I gain weight, like, by looking at a cookie, I can't get it off no it's matter honest. what I do. And it's part of the disease that I have. And that's been, that's been a hard issue. that's driven a lot of my depression too, feeling like people wouldn't love me because I'm yeah. a little fatter. Um, it's harder I mean, for women than men. It is harder with, there's expectations that, you know, we need to be beautiful all up into our old age or something. And I don't know. Um, yeah, I feel that pressure all the time, but, um, I have a unique ability to kind of just shut things off sometimes and just tune it out. And it still bothers me, but maybe not as much as other people. I can just push forward anyway. (laughs) Valerie, do you have any other things you want to share before we close? Um, you know what? I think we covered more than I even imagined we would. (laughs) You've done great. So... Um, our guest we're closing now is Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E, Loveless. And she's the media producer, is that your title? Yes. At Cedar Fort. And they have done 26 podcasts. Tell our, our listeners again um, the name of the podcast and the name of your book. So the podcast is Cedar Fort Publishing and Media Behind the Scenes. And, and you can find that. You can find that anywhere. So anywhere you can download podcasts like Spotify or Apple or iTunes or anything like that, we're on all of them. So you can find us anywhere. And it's mostly your authors talking about the books. It's all our authors. That's yeah. really cool. What a yeah. wonderful synergy to have books it's as a publisher really and a podcast. Fun. It's really amazing. Authors are really interesting people. <laughs> um, and then my book is called Enduring Promises of the Heart. And it is fiction, nonfiction. It's fiction. Technically it's a romance, but it's cool. um it's a comedy. I'm actually making fun of romance for most of the book. So if you like romance, but also kind of feel like romance is a little too hokey for you, I think you'll really like this book because that's kind of the whole point is that um, all women love romance, but sometimes it's just a bit too much, you know? That's great. (laughs) Um, It's just great to have you, Valerie. You're a wonderful person doing wonderful things and you're kind of a trailblazer. Um, I look at I call my own dad a snowplow dad because he did things that no person, no male figure had done in his family history. And that gave me vision as a son of what was possible. And I look at what you're doing and how that gives vision, not only what you're accomplishing in, in your own life and the things you're doing, but for your kids to see both that you and your husband doing wonderful things with your career and with what you're doing in the home and, It's really awesome. So thank you, Valerie Loveless, and our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.